Alright, let's open up our Bible. 2 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. 2 Kings 18 and verse 1. Now it came about in the third year of Hoshea, the son of Elah, king of Israel, that Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, became king. He was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father David had done. He removed the high places and broke down the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah. He also broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days the sons of Israel burned incense to it. And it was called Nehushtan. He trusted the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments which the Lord had commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him. Wherever he went, he prospered. Hezekiah. Finally a good king. If you've been studying with us, you know it's been a long time coming. And the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, not many were good. Not many, even among the good ones, walked in the ways of their father David. We're going to get there, but before we do, perhaps you've heard the story. It's one of my mother's favorites. She told it to me several times growing up. Every now and then she still tells it to me and I listen politely and after she's done, smile and say, yeah, you told me that. This was number 27. But it's interesting. A woman came home from the store one frosty fall morning only to find a snake coiled up on her front porch. Frozen and, and almost lifeless, the little snake looked up at her and she looked down at the little snake and, and it said to her, won't you please Take me inside. Let me sit by your fire and warm myself. And the woman said, I would, but I'm afraid you might try to bite me. Never mind the fact the snake was talking. I'm afraid you might bite me. And the snake said, I'm just a little grass snake. I wouldn't bite you. So the woman picked up the snake gingerly and took it by her, her wood stove wrapped it in a little blanket, put a saucer of milk out for it, and the snake warmed up. Well, later in the day, she went to check on the little creature, and, and when she went to move the blanket, it snapped out of the blanket and fixed itself, dug its teeth into her hand. She was shocked as she recoiled. It fell to the ground. She said, what are you doing? You promised not to bite me. And he said, silly woman, you knew I was a snake. <laughs> you knew I was a snake when you picked me up. How would you think it would be any different? This morning's story has to do with a a real snake in the grass, although it might not be the kind of snake that you would expect. Let's pray about this and, and spend some time talking about this. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for what you provide in it. We thank you, Lord, for the way your your spirit speaks to us. And the way you teach us, and that's what we ask for again today, just that your Holy Spirit would take these words and this story and and give it application. Make it live to us as you are so capable and able to do. May we hear the word, and Father, may we be doers of the word and not hearers only. We ask that you bless this time of study in Jesus' name. Amen. So we come to this section of 2 Kings for which I have been hoping for a long time. You know how in a good book or a good movie, it can get really negative 
But you can hang with it as long as there's just a brief moment of positive. Things can get horribly bad, can go horribly wrong for a hero, but if someone cracks a joke, it lightens the tension and you can go just a little bit further. You read a book and, and things can be in terrible places, but, but if something funny happens or something encouraging happens, you think, okay, I can go to the next page. And that's kind of like where we're at here in Second Kings. It has been bad. It's been very negative. Of all the kings of Israel, we just keep coming across king after king after king who is wicked and evil and who does not follow the Lord. It's kind of like life. Actually, it's kind of like golf. Think about it. Those of you who, who golf, you know, you get out there and you can have 17 lousy holes and be ready to throw the clubs in the lake and have one good shot. And I hear it'll last you months. You just can keep going. Well, that, that's what it's like. We, we are unique in that God has implanted in us a little thing called hope. And if we have hope, we can handle anything. If we can see that light at the end of the tunnel, we can keep going. It's when we lose sight of that light that we become hopeless. When we get mired in all the stuff, and I imagine there were times in Israel where people were absolutely hopeless, looking at the king, looking at what was going on, looking at the idolatry, and just bummed out and depressed. But if there's just a glimmer of hope, Paul says in Romans 5, 5, hope does not disappoint. Here's the difference between following Jesus and living life any other way. Life without Jesus is disappointing. But if you have hope in Jesus, it does not disappoint ever. He follows through. Paul said, because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So you always have hope. It doesn't matter what's happening in your life, how negative, how bad, how disastrous, how disappointing. It doesn't matter as long as you have your hope in Jesus. Because you know, worst case scenario, he's coming. Worst case scenario in your life, he is still on the way. He is still at work. He still is in control, even when everything seems to be out of control. Hope does not disappoint. Now, the story of the kings, like life itself, is not a fiction novel or a well-crafted screenplay. No, instead, it's a real-life, true history, the good, the bad, and the ugly. So far in, in Israel, we've covered 19 kings, every single one of them bad. Culminating in the disastrous fall of Samaria, the capital of Israel, and the Israelites being taken into Assyrian captivity in horrible and awful ways. And even down in Judah, we've covered 12 out of 20 of the kings. Seven were plain bad. There were four more who were good but disappointing. They just didn't quite get there. Those are the frustrating ones for me. The kings Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, and Jotham. They all merited this phrase. He did right in the sight of the Lord. Yet not like David. He did good, just not good enough. Not quite there. And we know the reason because with each one of these four kings, though they were good guys, it tells us the high places were not taken away. So frustrating. You keep waiting for a king to come along who's going to tear down the high places. Finally, someone who will do it, and Hezekiah is the man. Now you know what the high places are. If you've been studying through this, the high places are these spots all over Israel, all over Judah, to which the pagan worshippers would go and worship. They had Asherah poles there, which were phallic symbols for the goddess Asherah. Or Baal pillars, also phallic symbols for the god Baal. Or they would make up gods, or they'd have different gods, and they would go to these high places to worship. Not just pagans, though, Israelites. People of Judah. And these places were all over the landscape. The good kings, Joash, Amaziah, Uzziah, Jotham, these guys came along and they, they did good things for the Lord. 
But they left the high places alone. We do that in our lives. We think, okay, I'm living for Jesus now. I've given him my life, my heart. But we still have high places. And we think like the good kings. I'm just not going to mess with that. That's not, that's not a problem for me. That's not going to be an issue. So I'll just, I'll just let that go. I know I've got that movie in my collection, but I'm not going to watch it. It's there. The high place is there. I know I've got this relationship over here, but you know, if I, I, just, I don't spend a whole lot of time with that guy, so he's not going to tear me down. The high place is there. And we do the same thing these good kings did. Only one of the first 12 kings of Israel arose to what I like to call the gold star standard of David. That standard of David where, where the Lord said that if you walk like my servant David, if you follow me the way David did, well then I'll be with you and things will go well for you. Only one did that. His name was Asa. Back in 1 Kings 15 verse 11, it tells us Asa did what was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. How is he different? I'll tell you how. It was all heart. We talked recently on a Wednesday night about the fact that the kings who were good but not quite David-like were kings who worked with their hands for the Lord, but they didn't give their hearts to the Lord. They did good things in ministry for the people, but their hearts were not given over to the Lord like David's was. Well, Asa was one of those. The most recent king that we studied in Judah was a man named Ahaz, who was one of the most wicked, worst guys in the entire scripture. As Israel was being taken apart in the north, the Bible tells us, 2 Kings 17, 19, that Judah did not keep the commandments of the Lord, God, of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs which Israel had introduced. Over in 2 Chronicles 28.19 tells us the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz king of Israel for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. But here's the little glimmer of hope. He has a son and the son is named Hezekiah. And what's amazing is for as wicked as Ahaz was, Hezekiah was that good. Opposite of his father. Which is encouraging and hopeful to us, isn't it? That, that we don't have to follow in the pattern of our parents. We don't have to follow in the pattern of our ancestors. If there's, been, if there's been alcoholism in your family, guess what? You don't have to be an alcoholic. You're not bound to it. If there was some kind of a sin or abuse from a parent, you're not bound to that same thing. And especially in Jesus Christ, you now have the power of God to deal with that stuff. And to be, as Hezekiah was, one who walks with that gold standard of the star of David. Well, now we come along, and just when we begin to lose hope that there would ever be another David-like king in the land, along comes Hezekiah, and verse 3 tells us he did right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father David had done. All right. Verse 5 says he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him, for he clung to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but kept his commandments, which the Lord had commanded Moses. Hezekiah was, without hesitation, one of the three greatest kings to walk in Israel. Asa before him, and then Hezekiah, and then as we come further on, Josiah after him. Three great guys. Hezekiah walked in the ways of the Lord. He tore down those high places. Finally, a king came along and did that. Smashing the Asherah poles and busting the empty illusion of idolatry in Judah. I say the empty illusion of idolatry because that's exactly what idol worship is. It's empty. It does nothing for you. It is a vapid waste of time and the people of Israel fell to it and the people of Judah were not far behind them in the emptiness. 
But praise God for Hezekiah. He comes along and busts into that. And as we'll see over the next few studies, Hezekiah brought about a legitimate and true revival in the land. How do you know there's a revival happening? How do you know real revival is taking place? Now there are those who would say, well, by the power of the, of the Holy Spirit manifest in a place. By the healings and the miracles and the raisings from the dead. That's real revival. Not according to Scripture. You want to know what real revival is? It's when a people fall on their faces before God and repent. It's when people give their lives back to the Father. Revival is when people are drawn back to the Lord, not to hype. And this man, Hezekiah, will bring about great revival in Israel because he knocks down the high places. And when there's nowhere else to go, guess where the people go? They go back to the Lord. Josiah will do the same thing. He is going to bring about a great revival during his reign. How? Because they discover the lost books of the law and they begin reading the word again. They enter back into to study and knowing the word and meditating on it and revival happens. That's how you accomplish revival. Again, we'll talk about that more in the coming weeks here, Lord willing. Hezekiah's name, if you're interested in this, it's actually pronounced Hezekiah. Hezekiah, and it means Yahweh is my strength. And indeed we see that in this man. Verse 7 tells us the Lord was with him, and wherever he went, he prospered. Why? Because the Lord was with him. Now, for the rest of our time this morning, I want to talk about one of the early indications that the strength of Yahweh truly was in this man's life. Something he did that is amazing and shocking and shows the power of God present with him. We know he tore down the long-held idols of Israel, but among these was one the people of Israel had clung to for over 700 years. It wasn't a pagan idol. It didn't come from the lands round about Israel. No, in fact, it was fashioned by none other than Moses himself. 2 Kings 18, verse 4. Look at this verse. Right in the middle of it. He broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the sons of Israel burned incense to it, and it was called Nehushtan. Ooh. <laughs> Nehushtan. It sounds impressive. Sounds like a powerful kind of idol-worshipping idol name. You know, Nehushtan. Who do you worship? Well, I worship Baal. I worship Nehushtan. He's my God. You know what it means? A mere piece of brass. Nehushtan means a mere piece of brass. There are some commentators who think Hezekiah was the one who named it that. Saying, I broke this thing apart. It's a mere piece of brass. or just a piece of metal. No big deal. Nehushtan. But wait a minute. You say, you say Moses made this idol? Didn't he read the Ten Commandments? Wasn't he the dude who brought the commandments down the side of Mount Horeb? And bring them to, wouldn't he be aware, Exodus 20, verse 2, wouldn't he know that it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Didn't Moses know this? Yes, of course he did. But though I told you Moses made the idol... It wasn't his idea. Turning your Bibles back to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers 21. In verse 4 of this chapter, we see the people of Israel still wandering the land, still heading in the direction of the promised land. 
And it tells us in verse 4 that they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden because the people became impatient and the people became impatient because of the journey. Impatient, the word impatient there is discouraged. They became bummed out. They were having a hard time as they're wandering. And the people, verse 5, spoke against God and Moses, saying, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. What food is that? Manna. Tired of the manna. Sick of the manna pancakes every morning. Manicotti for lunch. It just got old. And the people were tired of it. And they're whining and complaining as they always did. And verse 6 tells us the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. Ever have a dream about snakes? Let me see a show of hands just to know I'm not a psycho. Okay, good. But I'm not the only one who's had those bad snake dreams and you wake up this morning. You know, they're everywhere. I had a babysitter once, kid you not, put me in bed and said to me, you can't get out of bed. Because there are invisible snakes all over the floor. Yeah, you want to twist up a little kid? I was like 17 at the time, but it really upset me. And I remember that night, I remember lying there in bed just looking over the floor. Wide awake, you know, eyes like saucers just going... And I finally called out to the babysitter, Babysitter, please come help me, i got to go to the bathroom. You know, I can't get... Snakes. And this is what God did. He sent fiery, poisonous, biting snakes all among the people. How awful would that be? Well, the result was in verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Watch this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. And set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Why on earth would God tell Moses to make a bronze serpent and put it up on a pole? An idol. A graven image. After just telling Moses and the people, don't do this, don't ever... Well, for one thing, God can do whatever He wants to do. But that thought aside, why would He have Moses construct an image for the people to look to and be healed? Two reasons. First of all, because it was the picture of their sin. That, that snake on a stick, when they looked up at that, what they saw was exactly what was biting them on the ground. And they recognized that that was a picture of their sin. And their sin was what needed to be repented of. So they looked up, and when they saw the snake on the pole, they repented. They were led into a place of faith, believing God, and they were healed. Just like that. It was a picture of their sin. But something the people couldn't possibly have known in that day was it was also the perfect representation, not only of sin, but of Jesus Christ. As Jesus said in John 3.14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes will in Him have eternal life. Now think about that for a moment, because it's a strange comparison. Why in the world would Jesus compare Himself to a snake on a stick? 
That bronze snake was a picture of sin. How could Jesus say he was a picture of sin? Because he was. Because on the cross of Calvary, that's exactly what Jesus became. The perfect man, the Lamb of God, became sin on the cross. When the people would look at Jesus, when we consider Jesus on the cross, as we did in communion, and as we think about this, what we're doing is we're looking at the serpent on the pole, the sin on a stick. You might say, Rick, I don't know if I can handle that because Jesus was perfect and now you're telling me he, he sinned? I'm just telling you what the Bible says. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When we look at the cross, we are looking at the ultimate end result of our sin. We are looking at the place that we should be. We're looking at the wounds that we should bear. We're looking at the brutality that we deserve. Oh, Rick, I'm a good person. I'm sure you are. And I'm sure you've never done a single wrong thing in your entire life. (laughs) The truth is, one sin is scar enough. One sin is bad enough to, to bump us out of the camp of those who could walk happily into heaven and say, Look at my goodness and righteousness, Lord. I'm good enough for you. No, you're not. And not a single one of us are. We need the sacrifice. We need the cross. We need Jesus. And so God, in his, in his amazing mind, came up with this picture of the people's sin then, but also a picture of Jesus on the cross later, a serpent on a stick, sin on the cross. Their sin poisoned them. Our sin poisons us. And our healing, like their healing, comes from looking to this standard, the standard of the cross. Let me just mention that you can either take the wrath of the cross on yourself or you can accept Jesus and his sacrifice in your place. The choice is up to you. But here's the problem with Nehushtan, or this mere piece of brass. 700 years later, we discover the people of Israel have kept it and are now offering up incense to it as an idol. I don't know how it happens. It's interesting because in Scripture, there's no other mention of it. You have the story in Numbers, and there's no mention of... In fact, I was talking with Paul Schultz on, on Wednesday night, and he said, didn't Moses destroy that? And I'm thinking, I don't know, did he? You go back and look. He set it up, the people looked at it, they were healed, and then they moved on, and no one says another word about this bronze snake on a stick. What happened to it? I'll tell you what happened. Somebody thought it would be a good idea to stick it with the other relics that were coming with the people. Hey, God did something powerful here. This is an amazing thing. And we were saved by looking at it. So we need to hang on to it because he might use it again. If he ever sends serpents again, we want to have this thing close by so that we can just look at it and be healed. Somebody tucked it away and carried it into the promised land and across 700 years, this thing became an idol for the people. Thank goodness we don't do that to the cross. You know, in the new and emerging church, there is a disturbing interest in tangible, artistic, hands-on images for enhancing our worship. Things that that we can look at and say, that helps me feel closer to God. Beads that, that we can rub and say, this gives me a sense of the presence of God. Pictures that we can have, even, even drawings or, or expressions 
that help us feel like now I'm, I'm closer to Jesus. Now I understand the Lord better. Thomas Aquinas, the philosopher, said people are more easily moved by what they see than by what they hear or what they read. Which is why, across 2,000 years of church history, why churches began to build these big cathedrals with stained glass in them. And pictures of Jesus there in the Galilee, or pictures of Him up on the cross, or the resurrection, so people could see them, and, and by seeing them worship, and be impressed by this. From the lighting of prayer candles, to the handling of beads, or the traditional Catholic rosary, or even to images of the cross itself... These things are being held up as focal points of worship. Now, if you happen to wear a cross this morning, it's okay. Hope you're not sitting there while you're worshiping thinking, this is helping. <laughs> I needed this. It's, it's Hayden's question, question about the crown of thorns. If we had the crown of thorns today, you know what we'd be doing with it. It would be in a special box, lit just right, you know, hermetically sealed and, and it would have the right air conditioning going through it to preserve it because and, and the box itself would be covered with lip prints of people kissing it. And we kinda of laugh about that, but hey, when we were in the Philippines and we went into the Catholic cathedral there, the toes of the of the icons, Mary didn't have any toes left. Why? Because people were kissing their toes right off. I know, poor Mary. <laughs> she didn't have a hand on the left side because it was reached out just far enough that the little fence there, people could lean over and, and rub the hand to receive son of Mary. It's unbelievable what we humans do with Nehushtan. Mere pieces of brass. You might say, well, what's the harm in having something tangible that helps me draw closer to the Lord? Let me tell you. The Hebrew word for graven image or idol is Pesel Tselim. Pesel Tselim literally means a carved shadow. It's, it's shadow boxing. It's chasing after something that isn't really there. Remember doing that as a kid so when you first realized that you had a shadow? You remember trying to run away from it? <laughs> it's still there. I can't. It's everywhere I go. There it is. But it's nothing. It's nothing. It's a shady representation of the real thing. That's what an idol is. Let me give you a few things to jot down regarding idols. Number one, the Bible tells us idols are demonic. They're demonic. In the church of Corinth, one of the many controversies that arose having to do with idols uh, was the meat sacrificed to them. You see, the people in that church in that day, some of them were going to the little meat markets there. They were called the shambles. They would go to the shambles and there they would sell at a, at a much reduced rate, at a cut rate, they would sell the meat that came off of pagan sacrifices. Now there were Christians in the church of Corinth who, was, who were going and buying the meat because, man, it was less expensive. There were other Christians in the same church going, you can't do that. Ah, that's, I mean, you're just, you're supporting idolatry. You, you can't do that kind of thing. It, it shouldn't be allowed. This big controversy is raging. So Paul, in response, wrote the following. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 19. He said, what do I mean then? He said, a thing sacrificed to idols is anything, or, or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles, to which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we not stronger? We are not stronger than He, are we? I mean, why would we even mess with this? That is, in essence, what Paul was saying. In, in this chapter, he's saying, look, all things are lawful, 
You're not going to hell because you happened to eat some meat that was sacrificed to an idol. But, but, why mess with it? Because the reality is there is something behind idols. The pagans worship these idols and they think they're worshiping gods. They're not. They're worshiping demons. And there's a reality here, gang, that demons will attach themselves to physical, tangible representations of gods. That behind idols, there may actually be a demon-connected Idols, images, trinkets that we think might help our worship experience are nothing in and of themselves. But they may very well be connected to or used by a demon. It's a subtle deception. These things are snakes in the grass. Nehushtan, a mere piece of brass, but a snake in the grass nonetheless. Silly woman. (laughs) Silly man, you knew I was a snake when you picked me up. The Lord knows how a demonic entity will attach itself to human-fashioned images, and so He expressly forbids the making of such totems and the using of such totems in Scripture. Let me just say, if you've got junk like that in your home, little Buddhas or statues of worship, or maybe a lovely little totem that you picked up on your last trip to Victoria, stuff that we put out there, be careful. I mean, just... Give it some second thought. I say, Rick, come on. You're just telling me I have a demon in my home? I'm just saying be careful. Be aware of what the scripture says. Idols are demonic. Secondly, idols are demeaning. They're demeaning. Let me read to you Psalm 115. The Bible illuminates this a little bit further for us. It tells us in verse 1 of Psalm 115, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols are of silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they can't speak. They have eyes, but they can't see. They have ears, but they can't hear. They have noses, but they can't smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound in their throat. And those, listen, those who make them will become like them. See, we make an idol in our own image only to find ourselves being reshaped in the image of that idol. That's what the psalmist writes. He says in verse 9, O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. For the Lord has been mindful of us. And He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. The psalmist tells us something about idols, gang. They are dumb, blind, deaf, unfeeling, and lame. The statue of Mary cannot step down from the pillar and give even an ounce of comfort. She is blind to the problems of the people who stand around her. Idols cannot do a thing for us, and sadly, if we worship them, we will become like them because we become like the God we serve. We begin to be like that which we worship. An idol is a representation made by man. Think about that. Man, in his flawed and sinful nature, makes an idol, which means that the idol is at best a flawed God. That'd be a good t-shirt. <laughs> Don't get me one. 
Notice every time I say that would be a good t-shirt, one shows up at my house. So I don't want a t-shirt that says idols are flawed gods. Don't do it. Whoever or whatever you worship, you become like. The Bible tells us in Luke 6.40, Jesus said, A pupil is not above his teacher, but everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. The fact is that the more we gaze at Jesus the more we focus ourselves on Jesus Christ the more like Him we become. And we'll never, never be gods in and of ourselves but we will be like Him for we will see Him John tells us as He is whatever we gaze at worshipfully we tend to become like So worshiping an idol can only demean us. Worshiping the Lord does the opposite. It lifts us up. It makes us better than we are. It doesn't lower us. Idols are demonic. Idols are demeaning. And number three, idols are deceptive. Like snakes in the grass. It's truly incredible to me that the people of Israel kept this brass snake across seven centuries as an ongoing image of worship. Blows my mind. God would do what he did healing wise and then they would maintain that stick thinking this is where the power is. At first it was simply a representation of the healing virtue of God. Then it became worship by itself. And Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the traditions of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And that's the point. There is no representation of God outside of the person of Jesus. I've said that over and over in here. We know this. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. And I'll tell you guys something, whether it's in an idol or a human description or a book or anything else, if you feel like you're getting a better picture of God than you can get from His word, be careful. It's idolatry. It's dangerous. It's deceptive. Isn't it interesting that in the Gospels we don't have a single description of Jesus? At least not physically. We have no idea what his hair color was. We have no idea if he had a beard and mustache or not. We don't know how tall he was, how short he was. We don't know if he was thin, if he was fat. We have no idea what Jesus looked like. Did he have Jewish characteristics? Maybe he had a big hooked nose. Maybe he was real Middle Eastern looking. Maybe the tone of his skin was darker than we, than we first thought. We have no clue. Because God saw fit never to give us a direct picture of Jesus in the scriptures. I don't know where all the pictures came from that we have of him. Where the ideas came from as to what he looked like, but it certainly didn't come from the word. Why didn't God give us that description? Because, gang, though he came in the flesh, John 1.18 tells us clearly that in his coming he explained God. And Jesus himself said God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The point is we are not to draw ourselves or cling to the flesh of Jesus. We are to cling to the person of Jesus. Not what he looked like, but who he is. That's what we're called to. Is it warm in here? Okay, let's open both doors and get some cross breeze going. And I have one last thing to tell you that we need to listen very closely to. Because I imagine that some people will listen to what we're talking about and they'll say, come on, Rick, I've got no idols. 
I don't. In my house, I don't have little icons. I've got nothing like that. And I don't have amulets or carvings or pictures or little statues. Nothing demonic. Nothing demeaning. Nothing deceptive. This teaching must be for someone else. You know what, what pastors tend to do when we start to talk about idols is talk about our cars and our houses and our boats and our planes and our toys and, and, and focus on those being the issues of idolatry. It, it's, it's too easy. You know, it's just too easy to go there. The reality is, I've got a car, I don't worship it. I drive it. I've got a house, I don't worship it. I live there. It's not a big deal. It's not an idol for me. Yes, we have greed in America. Yes, we've got all that selfishness. We talk about all those things. But there is a subtleness to idolatry that I think maybe in the church we have missed. A real snake in the grass. Something that, that even in reading this, I, and I didn't catch it at first. Studying this and thinking about it and going, Okay, Lord, what's the application? Because we've all heard about idols and we shouldn't you know, focus on idols. What's, what's the big deal? What was it that made Hezekiah so godly? Look back at verse 5. We're told he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel. So that after him there was none like him among all the kings of Judah, nor among those who were before him. For he clung to the Lord. I love that phrase. He clung to the Lord. For Hezekiah, there was nothing that might subvert his sole devotion to Yahweh. There were no golden calves like in, in Israel's, like Jeroboam's Israel. There were no places, no high places left, no Asherah poles, and certainly no more brass snake. What do you think the people did when Hezekiah smashed that brass snake? Do you think they were just okay with it? I, I can see the people watching the high places going down, maybe a little bummed out, but going, all right, well, that's just paganism. We just got to let that stuff go. But our brass snake? Wait a minute. This is a piece of our history, Hezekiah. What are you, but can you, the Judean Historical Preservation Society must have gone nuts. <laughs> you can't touch that thing. You know, by the way, why we still have the same bridge spanning Fidalgo and, and Whidbey Island? You know why the bridge has never been changed? Because the Historical Preservation Society around here doesn't want it to be touched. Oh, great, that's going to be real fun when we're driving across the bridge and it goes down someday, you know? But we cling to these things of history. This was an important moment. And, and uh, you know, don't hear me wrong on this. When God used that snake, it was an important moment in the history of Israel. Gang, it's... God used something in the past for Israel. Just because He used it then doesn't mean He's going to use it again. And that's where we miss it sometimes in the church. The power is never in the moment. The power is never in the movement. It is never in the man. And we in the church have this tendency to reach back to things we have seen that were successful and pull them forward and say, we got to do it this way. And it's idolatry. It's idolatry. It's Nehushtan. One time in Israel's history, the Lord powerfully used the serpent on a stick, bringing healing, leading the people to faith. He also used it prophetically, as we talked about, to portray that sacrifice of Jesus. But the stick was powerful then. Now it was just an idol. And Hezekiah recognized the subtlety of this snake in the grass, the subtlety of idolatry. They were reaching back. 
Clinging to anything that might hinder or hamper our trust in the Lord and in the Lord alone is an idle waste of time. And that, by the way, includes organizations, methods, and even movements of the past. There's a church movement that I have been fascinated by and have watched over the years, and I'm not going to name it, but it's done great things in the name of the Lord. And many churches have been born because of it. And its focus is right, and its purpose is true. But it is a movement nonetheless. And if we were to try and be at the bridge what that movement is, we would be entering into idolatry. Anytime as a pastor I look at another church and go, man, stuff's really happening there. Let's take what they're doing and bring it here. It's idolatry. It is not trusting in the Lord to do what He wants to do in this place. And that's the subtlety of it, gang. I I love this. Les and I had a lot of conversations back when the bridge first started. And one of those, he sat down with me and we were talking about the possibility of him coming on staff or being more involved in, in ministry here. And he said, you know, Rick, the Lord told me I, am not to, I was not to import anything into the bridge. Now, Les has been in ministry a long time. Served at several different churches. And what he shared with me, that meant a lot to me that day because I thought, you know what? It's not just Les who is not to import anything. It's all of us. I have people who come to me and say, look, you guys are doing some cool stuff here, but the church I just came from, you have no idea. If we do what they're doing, it'll be awesome. And it's so easy to get caught up in that stuff. Our old brass serpents that worked so well where we used to be or in the past, we try to draw it in now. We try to make it about what we're doing now. It's interesting, the times where I have most offended people in Bible study is almost always when Bible teaching scrapes up against personal traditions or personal history. See how subtle it is? That's the snake in the grass. That we cling to anything other than, like Hezekiah, clinging to the Lord. Lord, I know you did stuff over here. What are you doing right here, right now? What do you want us to see here at the Bridge Christian Fellowship? Here on this Sunday morning, on this end of North Woodby Island, what do you want? How can we follow you? As opposed to bringing up all the manuals and things that have been tried and tested in other places. By the way, we're in danger of idolatry happening right here. I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. Don't anyone dare make this barn into a high place of worship. Because this barn is not why this church is a good place to meet. This barn is not what draws people to Jesus Christ. This barn is a shed over our heads. And if we begin to say, oh, but but we're going to move from here and go over there and it's going to just ruin everything. No, it's not. Not if we cling to the Lord. I'll tell you what will ruin things if we cling to this barn. What is your Nehushtan? What is your Nehushtan, your little brass snake in the grass? Is it an object that you cling to to enhance your personal worship? Something you can't go to worship without? Or you feel like you really need? Or is there something binding you to the ways you used to function in the Lord, be it at a previous church or a movement or organization? One more verse and we're done. 1 John chapter 5, verse 20. John has written this letter to the churches and he ends it up in a very interesting way. He says... We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. This is true God and eternal life. It's one of the many places in the Bible where Jesus is called God. 
Jesus Christ is true God and eternal life. It's a fantastic end to a letter. And if I were writing that letter with John, I would say, that's it, that's the punch, leave it right there, John. He doesn't. He adds one more sentence. He says in verse 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. And why would he do that? Because he's just giving you two options. You trust in Jesus Christ, who is true God and eternal life, or you're in idolatry. Make the choice. Make your decision. An idol is any little snake in the grass that might alter our perception of the true God and eternal life, who is Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for times when our histories and traditions, Lord, when you ruffle our feathers. We thank you for that. We need that. Each of us need to be reminded that our trust is solely and only in you and not in anything that we have known, any place that we might be, any pastor that we might listen to. Lord Jesus, may our trust be solely in you. May we, as the writer of Hebrews said, fix our eyes on you, Lord Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May we look nowhere else and cling to you, Lord, that we, like Hezekiah, could be people who walk like David did. Or better yet, who follow after the person of Jesus. If you've never given your life to Jesus and you want to trust Him, you're tired of trusting all other things, I invite you to pray with me right now in your heart to the Lord. Father, I want to follow you. And Jesus, I want you to be my Lord. And I pray that you'll forgive me of my sin. I confess it now to you. I, I lay it at your feet. It's too numerous to even mention. But all that I've done in rebellion, I'm sorry for. I believe that you went to the cross, that you were lifted up. And I believe that you're resurrected. And Lord, I ask you now to be my Lord and my Savior. And to help me to trust you with my life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand up together and sing.